Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself the kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, Here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina away from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, and to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of God. It is eternal. It is without error. It is sufficient for us today, beloved. Now in our text this morning, we have once again, uh, we once again see Jesus giving his followers a parable. And like several of the parables that we've looked at recently in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke tells us from the get-go why Jesus is telling this parable at this particular time in his earthly ministry. Verse 11 of our text tells us this morning that Jesus proceeded to tell this parable because he was near to Jerusalem, as we've been hearing about over the last several weeks. He is near to Jerusalem, and because they, meaning uh, his disciples, not only the twelve, but this large group of people who were following him, they uh, were expecting that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the kingdom of God would appear immediately. These followers of Jesus, beloved, they still expected, after all this time with the Messiah, that Jesus, as the Messiah, uh, would enter into Jerusalem, immediately overthrow the Roman Empire, restore Israel's golden age. And of course, if the disciples were listening not just hearing, but actually listening to Jesus through his, uh, throughout his earthly ministry, his time with them, if they were really listening to his teachings about the kingdom being like a mustard seed, or truly listening to Jesus when he predicted three times now 
that when they entered into Jerusalem, he would be betrayed, turned over to the authorities, beaten, put to death, rise again three, later, three days later. If his disciples were really, really listening to what Jesus had been telling them time and time again, they would not still be holding on to this expectation that the kingdom of God would appear immediately when he entered into Jerusalem. But here they were. They were about a day's walk away from Jerusalem and his followers were still expecting, I think probably still expecting some great act of military triumph when he entered into the holy city. And so once again, Jesus has to correct their misconceptions about himself, their misconceptions about the nature of the kingdom of God. And to do that, he tells them this parable. In the parable, Jesus teaches his followers three things. First, he declares to them that he would be leaving them for a short time. Now, that would have been a, a shock to anyone who was expecting that when they enter into Jerusalem, the kingdom would immediately appear. Instead of fully establishing the kingdom, Jesus says, actually, I'm, doing, I'm going to physically depart from you for a time. Secondly, Jesus says in this parable that while he is gone, his followers would be entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel of the kingdom. And then thirdly, Jesus tells his, para, uh, his followers that he will return having received his kingdom. And when he does return, he will judge both the stewardship of his servants and he will destroy for all time his enemies who sought to usurp his throne. These are the things that this parable teaches us that this parable was declaring to his disciples on that day. And all of this, again, is geared towards correcting this misconception about what will happen when they arrive in Jerusalem. So let's look first here at Christ's declaration that he will be leaving his disciples. Primarily, this is stated in verse 12. Jesus says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. I think it's fairly clear, beloved, that Jesus is speaking of himself here. He is the nobleman who would go into a far country to receive a kingdom. And here, I think the event that he is speaking about is the event that Luke himself will record for us in chapter 24, verses 50 through 52, his ascension into heaven for 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. I think Jesus is speaking about his ascension into heaven. And I really think, beloved, that we don't have uh, to struggle to see this great truth. Jesus would depart from his servants, at least physically, for a time. And if we had a rich theology, I think, of what the ascension of Jesus Christ really means, we could see that this is exactly what Jesus is referencing. I think we need to... Uh, beloved, I think in, in our church today, in the, in the modern church, we need to regain a rich theology of the ascension. We are pretty good at marking the event of the incarnation, Christ's first coming, the birth of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus. We are pretty good, I think, at marking the significance and the importance of the death of Jesus and his resurrection and these things in the life of Christ are definitely worth us uh, 
marking and, and remembering and studying and, and so important, in fact, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the entire religious life of Christianity is centered around the resurrection, right? This is why we are gathered today on the first day of the week. The Lord's Day was the first day of the week that Christ rose from the dead. As I uh, have said many times in the past, every time we gather on the Lord's Day, we are, to put it in modern terms, celebrating Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection is the centerpiece to the religious life of the Christian church. But beloved, we also need to recapture a rich theology of the ascension of Jesus Christ. We need to mark the event of, of the, the, the ascension with as much zeal as we might mark the incarnation of Christ. Where I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, this is one area where I think the Amish have a big leg up on, on us. Every year, the Amish make a big deal out of Ascension Day. Now, I'm not advocating adding another man-made holiday to our religious calendar, but I am saying the celebration of Ascension Day shows that they may have a deeper understanding of the importance of this event in Christ's life. Meanwhile, I think most of us Reformed Protestants barely bat an eye at the event of the Ascension. We have to remember this, brothers and sisters, the ascension of Jesus Christ back into heaven, his departing for the far country, as it's put here in this parable, is nothing less than the coronation of Jesus Christ our King. Jesus departed, he left us physically, he ascended into heaven to receive his kingdom. The ascension of Jesus is where he passes from his humiliation into his exaltation. He was ascending, beloved, to take his seat, his throne, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's there now, upon that throne, where Jesus is currently ruling over us, reigning over all creation, subduing all of his and all of our enemies. That's a big deal to the Christian. Because of that big deal, because of the ascension, because of the coronation of King Jesus, every Christian can, as one pastor put it, live in the full assurance that at this very moment, the highest political office in the universe is being held by King Jesus. His term of office is forever. No revolution, no rebellion, no bloody coup can rest him from his throne. The Lord omnipotent reigns. And he reigns, he took that reign at his ascension. And so Jesus tells his followers, the time would come when he would leave them and he would go and receive his kingdom. That's the first thing Christ tells his disciples as they head into the holy city. But then, while he's gone... The second point this morning, while he's gone, he entrusts the stewardship of the good news of the kingdom, the gospel message, he entrusts it to those who claim to be his servants. Look with me now, verses 13 and 14. The nobleman, Jesus, calls together his servants, ten servants in total, and he gives them each one mina. A mina is roughly three months' wages uh, in those days. 
as he gives them this mina, look at what he says to his servants. Engage in business until I come. Now this might bring to mind another parable that some of us are familiar with, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. In fact, these parables are so similar that some people have speculated that Luke is basically telling his own version the parable of the talents in Matthew, Matthew 25. Uh, but I don't believe that that's the case. I think this is a totally different parable, despite the similarities. In Matthew 25, the parable there is showing how each disciple, each follower of Christ, is given different abilities, given different talents. That's why the talents, which is another sum of money, is not, you know, the, the one... The one uh, servant there doesn't receive the exact same amount of talents as another servant. And what that parable is teaching us is that those abilities, those gifts, we are to be using those, whatever we are given, we are to be using those for the glory of God, for the good of the kingdom. Here in this parable, each servant is entrusted with the exact same amount. Each servant is entrusted with the exact same thing. Each servant is given one mina and told to do business while the Lord is away. And beloved, I think this is clearly giving us an illustration of what each Christian is called to do while Jesus is physically away from us. We are not to be idly waiting for his return. Instead, we who have received the gospel, we are now called to be faithful stewards of the gospel. The mina represents the gospel message, and we are told to be doing the business of the gospel, doing the business of the kingdom while our Lord is away. We are to be proclaiming the word. We are to be testifying to the truth of our Lord. We are to be disciples of Jesus who make more disciples of Jesus. The gospel message is entrusted to us, beloved. It's entrusted to all of us. This is what this is showing us in this parable with ten servants, each given one mina. We are all entrusted with the same gospel message. All of us. Not just the pastor. Not just the elders. Not just the evangelist or the Sunday school teacher or the professor at seminary. Not just the deacon. Not just whoever it may be. All of the servants of Christ are entrusted with the gospel. And we are expected to use it, beloved. We are expected to do the business of the kingdom while our Lord is away. We are expected to use it for the building up and the edification of the saints and of the church. And we are to use it for the spread of the gospel of the kingdom. Paul, the Apostle Paul in his writings, often understood this great truth that the gospel is uh, like this mina. That Paul consistently refers to being entrusted with the gospel message. He understood that he was a steward of the gospel. If we are claiming to be recipients of the gospel, beloved, if we are claiming to have Christ as our Lord, as our King, if we are claiming to have received Jesus by faith, then we need to recognize that we have been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel message. In this parable, we see, as one commentator wrote, the reality that 
Joe Christian receives the same amount as St. Paul and Billy Graham and John Calvin. We are all entrusted with this gospel. Beloved, understand this. If you are a follower of Christ, then the king is calling you to be a faithful steward of his kingdom while he is away. And this, of course, I think brings us to the third and largest portion of our text. The king will return. The king will go away. He will entrust us with the stewardship of this mina, this gospel message, and he will return. And when he returns, he will call both his servants, those who claim to be his servants before him, to give an accounting for how we invest in the gospel, and he will call before him then his enemies. But look with me, verses 15 through 27, the return of this nobleman who is now a king because he's received his kingdom. Look at what he does. The first thing he does is call his servants to him to give an account for how they did business while he was gone. Here the parable uh, the nobleman focuses on three of the ten servants, but I think we could probably safely say that these three servants are representatives of all the servants. And in these three servants, you really see a dividing of the servants into two groups. Two groups. The first group is represented by the first two servants who are called forward. The first servant comes. He says, Lord, your mina has made uh, ten minas more. You understand, beloved, this, this servant invested the gospel well in his life. He did the business of the king while the king was gone. The gospel bore much fruit. And Jesus responds, well done, good servant. Thus rewarding him with ten cities. Ten cities in his kingdom. The second servant comes forward. He says, Lord, your mina has made five minas. Once again, Jesus responds and says, you are to be over five cities. In this first group of servants, those who did as they were commanded by the master, they took what was entrusted to them and they did good business. And before we look at the second group of servants, I, I want us to see two things about this first group, the, the good servants, the faithful servants. Two things worth considering, I think, uh, about this group. First, I want us to notice their humility as they're called before the king. They come before the king and look at what they say. They say, Lord, your mina has made ten. Or, Lord, your mina has made five. They don't make any mention of their own stewardship. They don't say, Lord, this is what I did and look, Look at what resulted because of what I did. They almost make it sound like it's the mina which grew and multiplied itself. It's humility before the king, beloved. And there's great truth in their humility. We are called to be faithful stewards of the gospel, to invest it, to proclaim it. But the work of gospel growth is ultimately not up to us. Our call is to be a steward but the success of our investments not in our own hands. It is the gospel itself as the Holy Spirit works through the, the pro proclamation of the gospel. It's the gospel itself which has the power 
to multiply. The reformer Martin Luther reflected that truth in his own life. At one point, someone asked him, you know, Luther, what do you attribute the success of the Reformation to? And this is how he replied. He said, I simply taught, I preached, I wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. He said, and while I slept and drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word did everything. That's the attitude these faithful stewards have. In the way that they described the growth of the mina, they were given, they basically said, Lord, I did nothing. Look at what your mina did. Look at what your word did. And they were rewarded for it. They were rewarded for it. We'll talk about that in a moment. I, the second thing I want us to see from that first group is the nature of the reward they received. Uh, you'll see that their reward is exponential. The one whose mina made ten more, he's rewarded with ten cities. The one whose mina uh, grew into five, he's rewarded with five cities. And many commentators will note that these rewards are 1,000 times and five, uh, 500 times the original investment. So when the, re when the king returns and he finds faithful stewards, amazingly, the faithful stewards of God's gospel are rewarded in a way that far exceeds their expectations. And I think this is bearing testimony to the grace of our God and King. Because we know that even as we, as His servants, strive to serve Him faithfully, even as we strive to be obedient servants, the ultimate reality is any good in us is simply a result of Christ in us. And this is the, this is the, this is the amazing thing about our, our God and King. If we prove to be faithful servants, the, the reality is that is because God has given us faith in Jesus Christ, in the King in the first place. Paul says that in Ephesians 2, that faith itself is a gift. It is because He has worked out our salvation. He has given us the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and help us live faithfully. Anything we do that might be considered quote-unquote good stewardship, our obedience, our doing business while the king is away, anything that we do is all because of a divine work within our souls. And then when the king returns, we get rewarded for it. Everything good we do is a result of God in us, God working in us, and then we're rewarded as if we were the ones who did do this work. That should be a mind-boggling truth to you, beloved. We should not miss this reality. Our faithful stewardship and the reward we receive for it, they are both a work of God's grace and His love towards us, His people. And so God produces this work in us. And it's not us, but Christ in us. And yet we get rewarded. Secondly, with the reward, I want you to notice what the rewards are. They are cities. They are cities. And I think that is significant. I think it's saying more than just you receive great wealth. I think it's telling us a truth about the nature of the kingdom of God itself and what kind of kingdom it will be. Our reward in the kingdom is not like the dragon 
from the stories who lays deep inside the belly of a mountain on top of a great pile of jewels and, and gold slumbering on for ages and ages. That's not what life in the consummated kingdom of God will be like. I think this, the fact that the reward uh, is made up of cities, I think it's showing us that we will be involved in eternal tasks in the kingdom of God, side by side with Jesus Christ himself, ruling and reigning over the kingdom. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 2, if we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And I think this is showing us that we will have work to do in the kingdom of God. Now, if that discourages you, because maybe you don't like work, let me remind you of something, beloved. Work is not a bad thing. God gave Adam and Eve in the garden work to do before there was sin. In fact, he gave them tasks, and those tasks were how he blessed them. Genesis 1.28 said, God says, God blessed Adam and Eve, saying to them, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, and so on. Their tasks, the work that God gave them, was part of God's blessing to them. It's only since the fall that work has become tedious and joyless and has become hard labor. Only since the fall. But is it any surprise to us that in paradise, in the Garden of Eden, is it any surprise that if God gave mankind work as a blessing to them, that in the fully consummated kingdom of God, we would once again be given tasks, work to do in the kingdom as part of our reward, as part of our blessing that we receive from God? Managing ten cities or five cities in the kingdom, that will require work. It will require oversight. And I don't know everything that it entails, but I do know that it will be a blessed, joyous, labor-free, pain-free work through which we will enjoy our God through which we will have his eternal blessings. The last thing I want us to see about this reward is there are varying degrees of rewards, even for God's people. Now, this is a controversial belief in the modern church. The thought that some Christians will be rewarded with more than others in eternity or in the kingdom of of God. But I think it seems clear from this parable and from other portions of scripture, Scripture as well that Believers will receive varying degrees of rewards in the kingdom. The Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle said, Our title to heaven is all of grace. Our degree of glory in heaven will be proportioned to our works. Does that make you a little jealous? Does it make you a little envious? Do you think, I don't want to get to the kingdom and see so-and-so over there get more than I get. I want you to, if that's the case, if that's what runs through your mind, I want you to remember something. Remember what we just said. What rewards we do receive in the kingdom of heaven when the king returns, all those rewards are a result of God's grace in the first place. Even the most faithful servant deserves nothing from God. Even the most faithful servant cannot put God into a position where he owes us any level of reward. And yet he graciously gives us rewards. 
The other thing I want you to remember is when we see the king, when he returns and we stand before him, we will be seeing him without the veil of sin before us. We will stand before him. We will receive these rewards without, for the first time, without that veil. And so we stand before the king and he gives to our brother or sister next to us greater rewards than he gives to us. We will not be envious. We will not be jealous. We will not feel gypped out of something that we think we deserve. We will not feel ripped off. Instead, we will praise the king for his grace. We will worship him for even rewarding us with anything at all because we know we are unworthy to receive anything from him. And we will praise God for rewarding our brothers and sisters. Not only will we praise God for rewarding them, even if they receive more than us, we will rejoice with our brothers and sisters for receiving the reward that they, re they received. And so varying degrees of reward, and yet we will have a, a sinless perspective on that, and it will add to our own enjoyment and glorification of God forever. So this is the first group of servants, faithful, good servants who invested the gospel and received a reward from the king. But then there's a second group of servants represented by the man in verse 20. The servant comes, he gives to the, Lord, to the king, to the Lord, back the single mina he was given in the first place. And what does the king say? He says, you are a wicked servant. Verse 22. Now why would the king declare that to this servant? After all, didn't the servant, servant simply take the mina and make sure it was safe? He, in a sense, maybe you could say protected the deposit. He didn't want to take any risk. And so he took it. Is that such a bad thing? Yes. It's a terrible thing, beloved. It's terrible for several reasons. First, this wicked servant, or at least this person who claimed to be a servant, outright disobeys the command of the Lord. Verse 13, the king expressly says, do business until I come. He did not do that. He defiantly disobeyed. He took the mina, he wrapped it in what equates to a napkin and sat on it the whole time. In terms of the gospel, we might say this is a man who claimed to have received the gospel by faith, but never let the gospel truly affect how he lived. He saw no desire to share it, no desire to spread it, no desire to let it influence his conversations and his relationships with his friends and his neighbors and his family. He never used it for the edification of the church. He never used it for the discipleship of his brothers and sisters. He simply took the good news and hid it away. It was outright disobedience to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, look at how this man then excuses himself. He makes excuses for that disobedience by blaming the king. I was afraid because you are a severe man. That phrase severe has some interesting connotations to it. And as he goes on to accuse the Lord, uh, when you take it all together, he is basically saying to the king, you're a master who expects to get blood from a stone. You're a man who gets rich off the backs of other people. You see, this wicked servant 
slanders the king. He's slandering Jesus Christ. So he's guilty of outright disobedience. He is guilty of blame shifting. He is guilty of slanderous words towards Jesus Christ. Yes, I think the Lord is correct when he calls him wicked. Jesus responds with those harsh harsh words and he says, you know what? I'm going to let your own words bring condemnation onto you. And he basically uses the words of the servant against him. If you really believe that I'm this harsh, severe man, if you knew that I was a severe taskmaster, then why did your fear of me and the threat of punishment not motivate you to at least take that mina and take it and deposit it into an account where it could earn just a little bit of interest? You didn't even do that much. You didn't even earn that 0.01% of interest that whatever savings accounts earn today. He, he couldn't even do that. If this guy really believed that Jesus was, the, was this sort of severe Lord, then even if the promise of more rewards in the kingdom of heaven did not motivate him, surely the promise of punishment might motivate him. This man had no motivation at all to be a faithful steward. And so in judgment, the king, Christ, takes everything that was entrusted to that man away from him. And he gives it to the first faithful servant. Now that's an interesting move by Jesus. Even the crowd saying, when Jesus says, take the mine away and give it to the one who has ten, the crowd say, now wait a minute, he's already got ten. Why are you giving him another? Why is more given to the one who has? And for the one who has not, why is even what he has, uh, even what he has taken away from him? I think what Jesus is teaching us here is, is that, as William Hendrickson once put it, the man who through diligent use of the gospel has enriched himself and others, he will, by continuing in this course, become richer and richer spiritually. On the other hand, the person who has become poor because he has neglected his duty in this respect, even whatever little he once had shall be taken away. Prove unfaithful, brothers and sisters and friends. Prove unfaithful with the mina that Christ has given you in this life. Don't invest it. Disobey the king by not conducting in the business of his kingdom. And you should expect to have none of the joys of doing the blessed, eternal work of ruling and reigning with Christ when he returns and brings his kingdom with him. That's what Jesus is saying there. What little you had will be taken away from you and it will be entrusted to a good, faithful servant of the king. I think that in this wicked servant we see someone who we might call a nominal Christian. Someone who is a Christian in name only. One who claimed to be the servant of the master, who claimed to serve the nobleman, who who claimed to serve his kingdom. But through his wickedness, he displayed, or he proved to be ultimately false. He claimed to be a, a, a servant of the king, but he was not. Now there are some people who might argue with me that they believe that this wicked servant was still a Christian, 
It's just that when he stood before the king, when he returned with his kingdom, uh, he entered into the kingdom, but he did so without any sort of extra rewards. He didn't get any cities. So he got salvation, but not the extra blessings of overseeing cities. You know, and I tried to give that idea some thought this week, beloved, because men who I trust and respect have put forward that idea, but I simply can't make sense of that. Jesus tells us this man is condemned. He declares him to be wicked. Those are not phrases that the good shepherd generally uses towards his beloved sheep. I think this man, this wicked servant, was like so many who may be sitting in pews all across this world today and maybe even sitting in our pews here in this room this morning. He, is claim, he claimed to have faith in Christ. He claimed to serve the king and yet showed no evidence of obedience, of love, of service, of submission to the king. These people are Christian in name only. And while they may fool the other servants of the king, they might be able to make us think that they are true servants. The king himself is not fooled. And when the king returns, all who claim to be servants of the king will be called to give an account. And the false servants will be exposed. And what they were given will be taken away from them. And I believe their fate will be exactly what happens to those who were outward, outright enemies of the king. Their fate will be exactly what is described in verse 27 of our text today. They will be treated like those who did not want Jesus to reign over them. It should not be lost in us, beloved, that at the end of this portion of Luke's gospel, it ends with a declaration of divine judgment. We have heard many times throughout Luke's gospel that when the king consummates his kingdom, it will be done through judgment. We've heard it several times in Luke, and here we see it once again. The king calls his servants to him, and then he calls his enemies before him. And these enemies consist of those mentioned in verse 14, the citizens who hated him and who sent a delegation after him rejecting his kingship. And no doubt that was a reference to uh, the unbelieving Israelites who were constantly in his day rejecting him and his claims to be the Messiah. But we should also understand these enemies, they not only include the unbelieving Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders who rejected Christ's Messiahship in his day, they not only include them, they would include any and all who reject Christ as their Lord, their Savior, their King. Any who work to usurp the kingdom of God, as many in our day still do, any at all who reject the kingship of Jesus Christ will be brought before the Lord in judgment. And that includes the wicked servants. It includes those who claim to serve him, but truly do not. They will all be slaughtered before the king. Before, not only before the eyes of the king, but before the eyes of the good and faithful servants. It's an imagery of divine condemnation, of eternal damnation. That's what will happen to those who do not serve the king, to those who work against his kingdom. And so as we close this morning, two just questions, I guess, of application that we can be thinking through this morning. The first question is, what kind of servant are you? 
Chances are, since we are all gathered here this morning in the house of God for divine worship, chances are that most of us are making some claim to be a servant of Christ. Maybe not all of you. There may be some of you here who say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. I just showed up for whatever reason. But chances are most of you are making some claim to serve the king. You say, I'm a Christian. I live a life in service to Jesus Christ. So let me ask you again, what kind of servant are you? Take stock of your life. Evaluate your condition before the Lord. When he returns and he calls you to stand before his throne, what will you be able to say became of the mina that he entrusted to you? Will there be any evidence at all that you invested that you did the business of his kingdom while he was away. If you're truly serving him, then surely there will be some evidence. The word of God itself says the word of the Lord never returns void. So when you stand before him, what will you be able to say to the king? Lord, this is what your mina did. It's a question worth considering. And if you, in honest evaluation of your own life, find that you are more like the wicked servant than the faithful one. As you take stock of your life, you say, I, in all honesty, have to say I've taken the mina and hidden it in a napkin and have sat on it. Then, beloved, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin. And you need to turn towards God's mercy that's found in Jesus Christ. You need to come to Christ for the first time and receive Him by faith. You may have been claiming to be a servant, but if your life did not, uh, was not engaged in the business of the kingdom, then that was only a claim. Confession of your lips. You need to believe with your heart that Christ is Lord. Repent. Receive Christ, as faith, uh, receive Christ by faith. rather. He will welcome you. He will entrust you with gospel stewardship. You will be enabled by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit to do the business of the kingdom. And your reward for that will be more than you could ever ask or imagine. That's the first question I want us to consider. The second question is similar. I think Lord willing, Lord willing, and this is, this is my prayer for us, many of us here today are faithful servants of the King. We have already truly come to the crucified, risen, coronated King Jesus by faith alone. And hopefully, uh, because of that, then most of us are striving in humble reliance upon the Holy Spirit to faithfully do kingdom business. And so if that is you this morning, beloved, I want you to also take evaluation of your life and your service to the King. But do it humbly. Don't do it and say, look at everything I've done for the kingdom. Isn't that wonderful? Look at what I've, look at how I've grown the mina that the Lord has given me. Do it humbly and ask yourself, what more, what more can I do for the king? I don't encourage you to do that so you can bring condemnation on yourself. I, I encourage you to take stock of your life and how you are doing the business of the kingdom to encourage you. To help, to, to help you strive to do more and more uh, faithfully good works every day. Ask God's help through the Holy Spirit to see the opportunities before you to make wise gospel investments. 
Pastor Philip Ryken, he said that, what are we doing with what we have? He says, the master has been gone a long time, but one day soon he will come again in royal triumph. Are you working hard for his kingdom? Are you making wise investments? What are you doing with the gospel? And he goes on to say, and I, I have to echo his words here. He says, I have to confess that I have done far too little for Jesus, especially when compared with how much he has done for me. That's the real kicker, beloved. That's the real kicker, brothers and sisters. What have we done for the Lord? What more can we do? The real comparison is not between us and other faithful Christians. Don't you dare look at other Christians and think, well, I'm doing more than them over there, so surely I'm making wise gospel investments. The real comparison is what are you doing for Jesus in comparison to what he has done for you? He emptied himself of his heavenly riches. He lived among us in the frailty of weak human flesh. He came under the law. He suffered under the hands of men whom he himself created. He even came under the power of death for a time. He had his heels struck by the ancient serpent, the devil, so that he could rise again and crush his head. He conquered sin and death and brings you and me and all who receive him by faith into his everlasting kingdom. So surely, beloved, when you remember what Jesus has done for you, out of grateful hearts of love and thanksgiving for our king, can we not do more with what he has entrusted to us? What more can we do for Christ? Surely we can strive to be more faithful stewards, knowing for certain that the day will come when he will return and call us before him and say, well done, good servant. What more can we do, beloved? May God, by the grace and enabling power of the Holy Spirit, work in us. May he grow us in our faithful stewardship to the praise of his glory.